Hey listeners, on May 13th, we invite you to join us and Reed Hoffman for a new virtual strategy session presented in alliance with Capital One Business. You'll hear insights from fellow entrepreneurs about how to be at the forefront of leading change with AI. So go to mastersofscale.com AI strategy right now to register for free. Again, that's mastersofscale.com AI strategy. Looking forward to seeing you there. Hi, listeners. It's Bob. We're between seasons right now at Masters of Scale, but we couldn't resist sharing this special bonus episode. Today, we're talking about something we're very passionate about here at Masters of Scale, the entrepreneurial mindset. The featured guest for the episode is Reed, with me serving as host. This episode will feel a bit different. It's not an interview, and it's not Reed proving a theory on how to scale your organization. Today, you're going to get a little peek behind the curtain of how we create episodes of Masters of Scale. We almost always start by asking for in-depth analysis from Reed on an interview he's done, the topics of conversation, and a theory of scaling that we're exploring. Our producers will send Reed a list of questions and observations for him to respond to. It's a little like a brainstorming session and also helps Reed and all of us unpack key thoughts and ideas. In today's episode, you'll hear Reed's analysis on the entrepreneurial mindset, what it means to cultivate that mindset, and much more. Reed talks about why we focused on the concept of the entrepreneurial mindset in creating the Masters of Scale Courses app. And I encourage you to stay tuned all the way to the end because we'll be sharing with you a lesson from the Courses app, which includes a special appearance from Sir Richard Branson that really brings it all together and a wrap-up lesson from Reed that you won't want to miss. Now, on to this special episode of Masters of Scale. You've got to have incredible talent at every position. It's like this huge push. There are fires burning when you're going home. Can you believe it? Such an idiot. And then you go back to, this is totally going to be amazing. There are so many easy ways. I'm so to do. I have no idea what to do. Sorry, we made a mistake. But you have to time it right. Oops. Working out of a three-bedroom apartment. Stuff that just seems absolutely nutballs. Ten years later, I'm like, well, that's just how you do it. We haven't made just how you do it. This is Masters of Scale. We'll start the show in a moment. Afterward, from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business. I woke up in the middle of the night because I had this nightmare that we were front page news that we've done the stupidest mistake of our life by making this pivot. <laughs> That's Aparna Saran. Chief Marketing Officer for Capital One Business, and she's recalling a moment from her previous position at Capital One when she was heading up a team designing a new business card. We had just made the decision to go all in and sunset the prior version of the product, which was honestly the cash cow for our business. When we made that decision within a senior leadership meeting, as someone who had been on the journey to build this out for five plus years, it was really exciting. But by the time the weekend hit, I started to feel the responsibility and the pressure. We are taking this big bet on something that I've built. Perhaps you've been there. You've made a pivotal decision and then panic sets in. How would Aparna calm her butterflies and steer her team through this pivot? We'll find out later in the show. It's all part of the Refocus Playbook, a special series where Capital One Business 
highlights stories of business owners and leaders using one of Reed's theories of entrepreneurship. Today's Playbook Insight, have multiple plan Bs. I'm Bob Safian, former editor of Fast Company, founder of the Flux Group, and host for this special bonus episode of Masters of Scale. We believe the single greatest success factor for any scale leader isn't knowledge, experience, or network. It's your mindset, optimism, resilience, curiosity, and also things that are less obvious, counterintuitive mindsets like letting fires burn and occasionally doing things that don't scale. And no one, not even Reed, is born with all the entrepreneurial mindsets. You may be comfortable in chaos, but less confident making quick decisions in quieter moments. You may be more creative than you are disciplined or the other way around. The good news is these mindsets can be cultivated. That's why we produce Masters of Scale and Masters of Scale Rapid Response. And it's why we made the Masters of Scale Courses app. The Courses app offers curated courses around themes all entrepreneurs need to know about leading through crisis, learning how to pivot, and more. But it all starts with how to build and cultivate your entrepreneurial mindset. Today, we'll hear from Reed about what it means to be a lifelong learner, how he continues to develop his own entrepreneurial mindset, and the impact of democratizing entrepreneurship. So here we go. The first question starts at the beginning. How do you think about cultivating an entrepreneurial mindset as an investor and as a startup founder? Is it something you should seek out? The entrepreneurial mindset is throughout everything that I do. It doesn't mean that everybody I hire is an entrepreneur or interact with, but like it's how you create the new, how you shape the possible into the real. And I think that's pretty fundamental. The entrepreneurial mindset is not just entrepreneurs, because it's not just the blank slate of paper. It's not just V0 to V1. One of the things that I look at that I learned from SocialNet is I actually think there's three kind of games. There's V0 to V1, V1 to V11, and V1 to V2. All of these are forms of entrepreneurial mindset. Now, it probably goes in like, oh my God, jump into the unknown. It goes V0 to V1, V1 to V2, V1 to V11 in those iteration, because the V1 to V11 is most naturally thing. And that's the thing that people tend to most do because it has the most certainty of outcome and so forth. But the other ones are fundamentally important because at some point you get to a local maxima or it just doesn't work on the V1 to V11 doesn't just really work. Now, what I would say is in terms of working learning, is you should always be learning, right? This is a little bit like the Glen Gary, Glen Ross, always be closing, but it's always be learning. And you should be approaching every circumstance with, is there something serious I can learn here? So what happens if you drop the ball and stop moving forward? Are there key moments or milestones when you think an entrepreneur should reset, should double down on going back to learning? So one question is, if you think, oh, I'm actually, in fact, way off here, right? Like, I don't really have the right map. I'm not learning at the right rate by being in action and by doing the thing. Those kinds of things. Then you go, oh, shit, I should go back to learning. Now, entrepreneurs almost always tend to be learn by doing, learn by getting into it. And it's actually that bias to action is actually, in fact, a very good thing for entrepreneurs. One of the things that people tend to overly bias on is learn, 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 learn before you do. And actually, it's, you know, learn, do, learn, do, learn, do, learn, do, learn, do, learn, do is useful. Now, sometimes you say, well, hey, I'm going to learn like there's something deep coding, you know, modern coding like artificial intelligence 
some aspects of business strategy or something else. She said, well, I actually need to learn a stack before I can get into the learn-do moment. And sometimes that's something in the field. Like, for example, I'd say one of the things that, you know, was a very good piece of advice that I was given was learn how to ship commercial software, even though the way that large companies ship commercial software is different than small companies. Learn the components of that first before trying to go create a software company, because then I'm not figuring out like, okay, what is a PRD? What is a minimum viable product? What does QA look like? What is, you know, the people doing these jobs together look like? What is the way they coordinate? Like I've got at least baseline of that. I may be improving it a lot. I may be changing it a lot, but I understand both what's baseline and also understand what everyone coming to the picture with some experience will also experience as a common language, a common method of play, a common theory of the game as a way of doing that. Now, as you think about learning, Are there great examples of learners out there, models of how people take in information? I think there are different kinds of learners. Not everyone learns the same way. Now, obviously, the classic way that people say this is some people are reading learners, some people are audio learners, some people are video learners, and so on. But it's not just that. Some people are learners by first principles and what they're doing. Some people are learners by talking to other people. Some people are learners by studying what other folks are doing. And so... You should have that theory of you as an individual, but you should also, by the way, have that theory of you as a group, you as a company, because just not thinking about individuals as learning, but as companies as learning and as kind of increasing capabilities and fitness functions is very important. By the way, that's not necessarily a big surprise because one of the things that happens as people get more systemized groups is postmortems and wiki knowledge bases and other kinds of things that are in there in order to facilitate that. A strong example of how Facebook operates is that Facebook says we built a huge testing framework so that everybody can literally individual engineers can run tests on features and things that they want to do in order to make stuff happen. Now, part of the process is you have to document that you've searched the knowledge base to see if anyone else has run the test before you do it. So you're not just blindly running the same test again. So you can position your test against what has happened before or say, oh, I see it's already been done. And that's an example of how not just individual learnings, but group learning kind of playing together. How do you work networks into learning? What are the key things you look for in learning environments? Working networks into learning is a function of kind of like, okay, who are the smart people out there that I can talk about? What questions can I ask them? What things can I learn from in what they're doing? What's the context in which I can talk to them and which I'm getting the most useful things in this? And so kind of network, and by the way, not all learnings, like everyone tends to learning as like how to, like how do I build an AI machine or how do I hire a sales force? And those are important. But also a lot of key learnings are what not to do because they're part of what defines someone who has learned stuff is they go, well, actually, in fact, these are the landmines. These are the things that looked like good ideas but are bad ideas and ultimately don't work out or kind of the classic thing that amateurs or smart amateurs are caught in. Or these are the things that could look like an interesting, bold, risky idea, but it's much harder than you think. A lot of learnings are that seems like a good idea, but the ROI is very bad on it. That's a great point. Learning is not only uh, about learning what to do, but what not to do. So how do you take this cautionary idea and translate it into scaling? Sometimes when people think about scaling, they think they have to do everything. When I went into business, my theory was 
look, I have this big brain, I can manage a whole bunch of complexity in my head, and so I'm going to have a competitive differentiation from all the other people around me because I'm capable of having this very big, complicated picture in my head. And actually, in fact, that's not how business and business strategy, nor, by the way, military, works. It's the simplest plan that wins. It's the simplest plan that creates a lot of value. And so a lot of what you're trying to do is not say, well, look, all five of those are great ideas. We should do them. The answer is, well, could we get away with doing one of them very well? And this is part of why people talk about focus is in doing that one thing very well and making that work. Is that the thing that we should really do from here? And is that the way we should play out? Now, by the way, you get this classic once companies get big is say, like, for example, you know, there are people who say, well, all that Microsoft should do is Windows and Office. Like say, well, why are you doing Bing? Because Bing is only a lost leader to put pressure on Google, and that's not how you're going to make that much money. Well, the answer is, if Microsoft hadn't done Bing, then they wouldn't have had Azure. And Azure is the next computing platform in the cloud, which puts Microsoft in the running and the edge for that. And so that's part of the reason why you have, once you get big, a number of things, and why the whole thing of doing all this only one thing isn't actually, in fact, once you're there, isn't actually, in fact, the right strategy. Now, when you're a small company and you say, we have five ideas, doing one is much better than doing five. And even though you might do one and experiment a little bit with one, the discipline is to play that one out and then correct if it's not the right one. We'll be back in a moment after a word from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business. There was panic that set in that night because I didn't want to let people down. We're back with Aparna Saran of Capital One Business. She was recalling the time she woke up in a cold sweat, terrified that the new product she had been working on might fail. So the next morning, she sat down and wrote an email. It was Sunday morning, and I said, you know what? I'm going to just like share this with my peers. It was very emotional. It was like sort of a cry for help. Aparna realized that if the new product didn't take off, she needed a plan B, preferably multiple plan Bs. I'm inviting them to be the thought partners so that we are mitigating as much risk as possible and we have contingency plans in place as we make this move. You write something like this and your heart is pounding, should I send this? It was a super vulnerable moment for me. But then I was like, I'm going to just send this. Like, what's the worst that will happen? It can't be worse than being on the front page of the (laughs) newspaper. So she held her breath and hit send. What happened next would surprise even her. We'll hear about that later in the show. It's all part of Capital One Business's Spotlight on Business Leaders, following Reed's Refocus Playbook. All right, a final question for you, Reed. Why do you choose to host Masters of Scale? The entrepreneurship is how the future is created. It's how the future is created for products and services that improve society and life. It's how the future is created for jobs and for people to do things. And it doesn't say that big companies are mincemeat, but like there's an increasing what John C. Lee Brown and John Hagel called a topple rate, which is the last decade of companies that were in the S&P 500 dropping out of the S&P 500. Because yes, some large scale companies really go the distance, but also companies fail. For example, would you have anticipated that Yahoo, you know, went from the giant of the internet to who are they now as a way of doing it? And that can happen with any of these tech companies. It's help with all of that. That's part of that creating that content 
that people across all industries, all geographies, startups, and existing business people, even small business people, even a restaurant entrepreneur, because you go, well, that's, you know, may not actually ultimately go to scale. So the blitzscaling lessons, for example, don't apply, but the entrepreneurship does. And then, of course, on the courses app, the whole thing is that's the reason why these set of mindsets are very important, because these sets of mindsets allow you to approach the challenges that you're solving with like a learning mindset, with a what's the way that I can win this game? What's the way I can get more upside, avoid downside? And what's the way that I am better day by day, month by month, year by year in doing this? And sometimes that requires like asking the right question, approaching it the right way in order to learn it. Obviously, the specific like, oh, this is how you do a restaurant or this is how you do a massive scale company. The specific rule may not be in the courses app because it's the mindset, the way which you bring to it that allows you to learn. Thanks, Reed, And thanks, too, to our listeners, because we believe in learning. We've tacked something special onto this episode for you, a free listen of day one in the Masters of Scale courses app on the mindset of scale. This one features Sir Richard Branson. The centerpiece of each day in the course is a 10-minute daily practice anchored by a key first-person story from an iconic leader like Branson and concluding with a prompt or practice from Reed that you can take into your day to drive a new behavior. Each day also includes optional content for you to dig deeper. There's a three to five minute concept that unpacks the day's key idea and a full length interview with one of the terrific guests we've had on the podcast. This is the first time we're releasing the catalog of the entire 60 to 90 minute interviews with Reed. They're available only to Masters of Scale members. So here's day one of the Mindset of Scale. The theme of the day is Ask What If, Why Not? with Sir Richard Branson. Let's listen. Welcome to day one for the Mindset of Scale, our first course in the Masters of Scale app. I know how each minute matters for an entrepreneur, and I know you probably have a tendency to multitask. But take a moment right now to turn off Slack, close your email, and arrive for these 10 minutes. It will be worth your time. Whether you're an entrepreneur starting something from scratch on your own, an intrapreneur who builds something daring inside established organization, or an executive leading at scale, your single greatest success factor isn't knowledge, expertise, or network. It's your mindset. So you have to think in ways that are often the exact opposite of what you learn in school. No one is born with all of the entrepreneurial mindsets. You may be comfortable in chaos, but less confident and making quick decisions. You may have a natural instinct for escaping competition, but less certainty about building company culture. The good news is that all of these mindsets can be cultivated, and that's what this course is about. Each day, we'll tackle a different essential mindset, and the most fundamental mindset you need is a bias for action. It's not enough to have good ideas. You have to be ready to act on them. To show you what I mean, I want to share a story from Sir Richard Branson. Richard is known for his death-defying entrepreneurial leaps into new markets and industries. Virgin Records, Virgin Airlines, and Virgin Galactic are just a few. He embodies the entrepreneurial biased action. We'll start the story in the mid-1960s. Richard was in high school and about to act on his very first venture. The Vietnamese War was going on. Like a lot of young people, we thought it was a travesty of justice, a horrendous, horrendous, horrendous mistake. 
And so I decided actually to start a magazine to campaign against it. Richard was only 14 when he launched what he called Student Magazine. Like most schoolboys, he lacked an office. And because this was the late 60s, he didn't have his own phone, which he needed to sell advertising and conduct interviews. He found his solution in a classic British icon, a red telephone booth, or as they say, telephone box. But the amount of time he spent in his three-by-three-foot office became a problem. I started on the magazine from the school phone box, and at 15, the headmaster said to me that I either had to stay at school and do my schoolwork or leave school and do the magazine. And so I said goodbye to him. And the magazine became quite successful. I mean, we sold about 100,000 copies an issue. Not every 15-year-old would have the bravado to start a business, much less abandon school to do so, and I really wouldn't recommend it. But what I want you to notice is the underlying mindset, the unstoppable bias to action. Have an idea, act an idea, never look back. And he didn't. The magazine was the launch pad for Sir Richard's next and more famous first venture, Virgin Records. The spark came, as it so often does with Richard, from an offhand comment. One day, somebody said to me, look, music is horrendously expensive, and why don't you consider starting a music company? And so we started Virgin Records. It should probably go without saying, but I'll say it anyway, that this was in the days before digital music. The Walkman was almost a decade away. CDs were a futuristic gleam on the horizon. Vinyl was king. It was only one problem for Sir Richard's fledgling record store, but it was a pretty big one. We didn't have any records, but once the orders came in, we then went and bought them from record shops and tried to get a discount and um, handed leaflets outside concerts. And because we didn't buy the records up front, we got the cash flow to fund it in that way. And Virgin Records was born. That's right. Richard took the orders and the money before he had the stock, or even knew if he'd be able to get it at the price he was offering his customers. There are a few things I love about this story. The audacity of starting a record store without any records is one of them. But I also love that their lack of cash flow led directly to their advantage. Richard and his team had no choice but to negotiate those steep discounts because they had already made the sales. Richard's fast-growing reputation as someone who did things differently in a quick, cavalier manner was attractive to lots of people, not least of all, musicians. A young artist came to me with a tape, and he was only 15 years old himself, and I found the tape hauntingly beautiful. We didn't have a record company, so we went to the eight record companies to try to get somebody to put it out. None of them would put it out. Here it comes, another moment when Richard decides to go all in on a daring notion. So we decided to start a record company, and Tubular Bells was the name of the album, and Mike Oldfield was the artist, and it sold millions of copies. Even if the name doesn't ring any bells, tubular or otherwise, you would very likely recognize the music. The album's opening track was used as a theme for the movie The Exorcist. And on the back of that, we were able to build the largest independent record company in the world and ultimately to sign people like the Rolling Stones and Janet Jackson and Genesis and Peter Gabriel and the Sex Pistols and and so on and so on. So it was a lot of fun. By the mid-80s, Sir Richard's bias to action had seen him launch a film distribution company, a video game publisher, and most famously, an airline. 35 years ago when we started it, the 
Big carriers were dreadful. You were lucky if you had a, a lump of chicken dumped in your lap and there was no entertainment and very, very surly, surly crew generally. And on one of those flights coming to the Virgin Islands, I got bumped, which is a sort of typical thing that airlines did in those days. And so I hired a plane and filled it up with all the people who had been bumped and called it Virgin Airlines as a joke. However, the joke very quickly had Richard ask himself seriously the question, what if, why not? And we arrived in the BVI. And during that flight, I just thought, airlines do bump people. Maybe I should ring up Boeing the next day, which I did, and asked if they had any secondhand 747s for sale. Turns out they did. And the real Virgin Airlines was born. Sir Richard uttered the five words he'd repeat for the rest of his career. Words that became the title of one of his three autobiographies. Words worth emulating, even if you don't quite want to repeat them. Screw it, let's do it. Screw it, let's do it. It's the mantra that let Richard shake up the staid airline industry. And it's not the only industry Virgin set out to disrupt. Soft drinks, trains, even space travel. Not every venture worked, but Richard went all in on each. If he could succeed, he did. And you can't help but marvel at his bias to action, his willingness to ask, what if, and then follow those fanciful thoughts with bold and decisive steps forward. But you don't have to be born with Sir Richard's bravado to cultivate a biased action. If you're taking this course, you clearly already have the seeds. But there are a few common things that might be tripping you up. You might be so busy fighting fires that you become all reaction and no action. Or you might just find yourself stuck, kicking the can on an idea because you don't know how to move it forward. So what you need to do is cut through the loops of analysis, overthinking, or overwhelm that get in your way. You have to find a way to act. And I have a specific tool you can use starting today. Next time you have an idea that just might scale, act on it immediately using the word ACT as an acronym, A-C-T. A, ask the question, what if, why not? Do it any time you're inspired, delighted, or frustrated in a way that sparks an idea. Do this right away, not later, it's the starting point of all great products. C, call your network, because taking action doesn't mean acting alone. In fact, the very first thing you should do when contemplating a big move is go to your network. Talk to the people you respect. And finally, T, take a step. Any concrete step to move it forward. Sir Richard called Boeing to see if they had an extra plane, and they did. What can you do right now this minute. So that's your ACT tool for taking action. But this next part is the most important. Once you land on the step you can take, don't delay. Don't add it to your to-do list. Don't write a draft and save it to edit. Take the step. Do it right now. Act. That was Sir Richard Branson in the Masters of Scale Courses app with Reed's terrific advice capping it off. If you want to learn more, use promo code MINDSET at join.mastersofscale.com slash mindset for a 25% discount on annual membership. I'm Bob Safian. Thanks for listening. And now, a final word from our brand partner, Capital One Business. Throughout the day, text messages and emails kept pouring in. Whatever you need, just let us know. 
We're back one more time with Aparna Saran of Capital One Business. She was telling us about a Sunday morning email she fired off in a moment of panic. Minutes later, her inbox was overflowing, and the support she found wasn't just emotional, it was practical. We talked about detailed contingency plans, and we created our go-to-market strategy. Before we are in full rollout mode, we had stage gates so that we could test and quickly learn and iterate. And within a matter of like six months, as we were rolling things out channel by channel, those stage gates would allow us to pivot if we saw something that we didn't like. That day, Aparna learned a lesson that stayed with her. Having multiple plan Bs doesn't just expand your options. It gives you new opportunities. The best way to pivot is actually open doors for thoughtful conversations because humility in knowing that you actually don't know everything as well as the empathy in knowing that disruption is always drastic and abrupt helps you go through that pivot with other people in a very different way. Capital One Business is proud to support entrepreneurs and leaders working to scale their impact from Fortune 500s to first-time business owners. For more resources to help drive your business forward, visit CapitalOne.com slash Business Hub. That's CapitalOne.com slash Business Hub. Masters of Scale is a Wait What original. The show is recorded remotely with sanitized audio gear. Our executive producers are June Cohen and Darren Treff. Our supervising producer is Jay Punjabi. Our producers are Jordan McLeod, Adam Skuse, Catherine Clark Gray, Hallie Bondi, Marie McCoy-Thompson, Christina Gonzalez, and Chris McLeod. Our editor-at-large is Bob Safian. Our music director is Ryan Holiday. Original music and sound design by the Holiday Brothers and Eduardo Rivera. Audio editing by Keith J. Nelson, Stephen Davies, and Andrew Nault. Mixing and mastering by Aaron Bastinelli. Special thanks to Chris Yeh, Elisa Schreiber, David Sanford, Saida Sepieva, Adam Heiner, Emily McManus, Kelsey Capitano, Tim Cronin, Sarah Sandman, Kerry Goldstein, Anna Pisano, Mina Corsala, Charlie Manessis, and Colin Howarth.